0: Uh, this morning we were talking on the topic of sex and marriage. If, uh, if you've not been here, the uh, messages are online on our website, you can get them on podcast um, if you want to play them for your spouse, but um, they are available for you. Um, we've been talking about the fact that the essence of marriage uh, is an inner commitment, and it's an inner commitment that is expressed in two uh, specific outward acts. The first outward act, of course, is the wedding ceremony itself when a a man and a woman stand together before their friends and their family, and they declare their commitment one to another exclusively to the other person. Uh, The public declaration also helps both people to prove uh, the sincerity of that inner commitment that they're making to the other person for as long as they both shall live. So one of the reasons why we, we publicly declare our vows is because we are saying to the community, and back in the day, too, where, where many from the community would come to a, to a local wedding, we are saying to the community, I choose no longer to live as a single person. talked about that a little bit last week. That I'm officially, as we use the phrase, off the market. So if you're interested in me, it's now too late. You know I'm not going to be interested in you. And uh, I am exclusively giving myself to this person. So that's one of the reasons for the public vows. Another reason for the public vows is to make sure that the person who is claiming to get married is sincere about that inner commitment. What I mean by that is we know it's not uncommon for someone, the occasional time, to be left at the altar. Somebody gets cold feet. Somebody doesn't show up at the wedding the last minute or unfortunately sometimes on the wedding day. Why? Because when you have to make that statement publicly, then you've got to wrestle with all those feelings you've got to really know. In fact... You probably know some people who they got married and probably are happily married today, but the night before we're thinking, do I really want to do this? And so that public vow, that public commitment is what makes you really think through how sincere that inner commitment that you've made or that you feel actually, actually is. It also reminds us that a common law relationship is not the same as marriage. Neither is marriage just a piece of paper. Because the marriage ceremony actually is the commitment. For example, when a person is water baptized, oftentimes what will happen, and it's intended to do so, is a person is moving from what you might call a private faith to a public faith. Or even when somebody becomes a member of the church, in, in some ways, as we're having a little session lunch and after. And by the way, it's immediately following the service, so if we're done here at twelve, we'll just slip right in there rather than twelve thirty. Just when the as soon as the service is over, we'll be in the cafe. But when a person becomes a member of a local body, what are you doing? Essentially, you're saying that I am moving from being a spectator to being a participant. In the body life of the church, I want to publicly declare that I'm, that I'm kind of shifting from that place and I am part of this body. And so in the same way, the marriage ceremony is a public announcement that the marriage commitment is really there. So that's one reason for that outward act of our marriage vows when we get married. A second reason, or a second outward act rather, that reveals this inner commitment is the actual act of sexual intimacy or what we call the sex act. In Genesis, we know the Scripture well. The Word says that the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. Now, the translation says cleave to his wife, wife to the husband, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this was something that was a lot better understood in earlier years than it's really understood in our day. In our modern weddings today, we essentially come to the ceremony, it lasts maybe a half hour, 45 minutes, then we go uh, after they take their pictures, we have a, a reception together, maybe for a couple of hours, and then we all go our way. It was not that way, not too many years ago, but especially in the Jewish culture and other Middle Eastern co- uh, cultures, guests oftentimes would stay for several days. Not only would they stay for the ceremony and the reception, which could go on for a couple of days, they would also stay as witnesses for the consummation of the marriage. What I mean by that, if anybody saw the movie years ago, uh, Yentl, uh, Barbara Streisand, uh, I think they showed it in that custom as well, that, that after the marriage had been consummated, that evidence would be shown by the blood-stained sheet that the covenant of marriage has been sealed. The union has taken place, and now there is this commitment, this contract, not only between the husband and the wife, but also between the two families. So the people were there to bear witness to that, and everybody went home, the, all the public knowing this couple is now one. The contract has been sealed. They are now husband and wife in every way. And so we see that the act of sex not only symbolizes the commitment of the husband and wife, but it also reinforces that commitment. Now, I want to talk this morning about a few of the purposes for sex, in particular sex in marriage, but also some of the dynamics that are present in the act of sexual intimacy. And the first one we see in Scripture is the purpose is for bonding, Now, we just read in Genesis chapter 2 that a husband and a wife become one flesh. But I want us to understand this morning, it's not only referring to sexual union when we become one flesh. That is a major component. That is a very strong component of becoming one, but it's not the only one. Along with that, along with sex, what makes a husband and a wife one, you might say, is doing life together as a couple. What you'll discover as you're married is that the the struggles of life, the issues of life, the things you process together, you experience together, that these things will either push you closer together or they will drive you further apart. So let me ask you this morning, what are you doing as a couple with tough times that you face? What are you doing as a couple with some of the things that you are facing perhaps now? And maybe what you're facing right now is you find yourself just in a place of of maybe drifting or a place of dryness or, or a place where you're kind of aloof to one another. Whatever it is you're experiencing together, let me ask you this morning, what are you doing? Now remember this, you chose your spouse. I don't know of anybody here this morning who had a gun held to your head on your wedding day. I understand that happened in the old days. I don't know if that's your story but you need to understand that becoming one flesh, it takes time. It takes time for the couple to deliberately come together and also to do life together. Those are the things that makes your bond stronger and stronger. And that's why as a couple this morning, you need to find ways to spend time together. Friends, you have to spend time together if you're going to stay together. And by staying together, I don't mean just being under the same roof. I mean staying together, being connected, being intimate, being close, being best friends. You need to spend time together. Becoming one and staying one, I believe, requires time. Now, concerning the sexual union, the Bible says it has to do with so much more than just the physical connection. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. In other words, what he's saying is that the oneness that happens between a man and a woman who are outside of marriage, but physically are involved sexually, he says when that happens, I want you to understand that in the sex act, it's not just a physical act, but you are actually becoming one throughout your being. You may be familiar with Paul's words in First Thessalonians. I don't think I have it up there, but if you're writing notes down, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, the Bible says that God has made us a three-part being. He says, notice, that we are spirit, soul, and body. You see, the world says we're body, soul, and spirit. Why? Because the body, the sensual part of our life, is so dominant for the average person. But the Lord says, no, that's backward. I want your spirit to have dominance. That's how you live a spirit-controlled life. That's how your soul, your will, your emotions, your feelings, your physical drives and urges, where they're not all bad, God-given, but can be out of control, out of whack, if not in the proper order. He says, I want all those things in order. Why? So that you can experience life and relationship to the full. And that happens when your spirit has dominance in your life. And your spirit, by the way, is the only part of you that actually communicates with the Holy Spirit, with God, and receives his truth. So the Bible says that God has made us that three-part being, and those three parts are interwoven in a way that we cannot separate. So in the Bible, when God says that a man and a woman will become one, he means that you become entangled. You become entangled or interwoven physically, emotionally, and spiritually Sex engages the whole personality. And that's why uh, Paul says that that sex with a prostitute, and he's also referring to the fact of even just sex outside of marriage. The act of sex with anyone outside of that marriage commitment, he says it is so potentially damaging because every act of sex involves the mixing together of two people. So he says you have to be very careful. You have to understand how serious it is let's take for example the emotional level the emotional mixing that happens during sexual intimacy we know that sex makes a person feel connected to the other person now a person may be emotionally detached they may have so abused their sexuality or just lived so loosely that they just kind of go through the motions And they really don't make that emotional commitment or at least uh, what they desire in the way that they desire to because there is that, that numbness. But Paul says that there is this emotional attachment that takes place when you're joined with another person. It's not just physical. And that's why, for example, that in the midst of sexual passion, that a person will sometimes make these outlandish statements or promises to the other person. Or they will do the same to them because there's just this emotion, this euphoria of feelings that is going on, and this person makes all these, you know, promises kind of thing. And, and we know that happens sometimes. If, whatever, you watch a movie or maybe you had the experience, and, you know, after sex, it's kind of like they forget what they said. All of a sudden, you know, the mind just kind of goes blank. Um, but that's because of the emotional attachment or at least the desire to make that attachment a number of years ago. I heard a lady uh, share a bit of a story. She was a prostitute, uh, formerly a prostitute, and she said one of the things that would probably repulse me the most with my clients is that quite often men in the middle of sex, they would be saying, I love you. They don't know me. Uh, they don't you know, follow up type thing. They don't care about me. I'm just there for the physical act itself. But they would say time and again how much they love me. Well, why is that? It's because our sex drive is more than just an urge to physically connect. It's also a very strong desire to connect emotionally, to connect spiritually with the other person. I believe that's also why that within the marriage relationship, that if the emotional connection is not there, if we don't spend time to make sure that there's emotional health in our relationship, what happens? What happens is the physical part becomes very unfulfilling, doesn't it? The physical part... It just kind of go, is going through the motion. There's not that connection there. So there needs to be the emotional stability or the emotional investment there. And if it is, then sex itself becomes very satisfying, very fulfilling. And it's not restricted to age. and In fact, I remember Josh McDowell, a number of years ago, he asked an 84-year-old man, he said, when do you stop enjoying sex? He said, sometime after 84. Now, I know you're cringing, some of you. But you see, the fact of the matter is that as you grow, when there's emotional connectedness there, when, there's, when you're truly becoming one, when you're investing in your time, when you're investing with, with a godly love over time, although your spouse is still attractive to you, they will always be beautiful or handsome to you. Why? Because you're no longer just seeing a physical face. When you look at your spouse, you're seeing history. You're seeing the things you've experienced together. You're seeing the children that you've raised, the things you've gone through, the things that you know about them at a deep level, things that you like and things that you don't like. But there's the whole package, your soul, your emotions, your spirit, all that you have shared, that's what you love. And that is what I believe God intends for all of us. And So that happens at having that health at all those different levels. Let me also say this. I don't believe that any man or any woman just wants to have sex. I really don't believe that. Again, contrary to what our culture will say to us, especially in regards to men, I don't believe for a moment that the average man just wants to have sex. Now, in our culture, for those who don't know better, and it's increasingly women as much, we'll talk more about it next week, but women increasingly as much are involved in a lot of these perversions and so on, and so it may be all that they know, and they think that's all that there is because they don't know truth, they don't know the Lord, they don't know God's pattern, so people can fall for that. But when sex is only a physical release, what you'll discover is that afterward, it's always followed by a sense of rejection. Whether that's sex outside of marriage, whether that's unfaithfulness, sex with somebody else besides your spouse, or whether that's solo sex or masturbation, they are never fulfilling. There's always a sense of rejection because the promise is release and fulfillment, but you see there's no real connection. And because of that, again, there is that, that sense of emptiness. Now Paul goes on to you're getting off. You're quiet this morning. You're all out there. You tell the person beside. This is good stuff. And It's going to get more interesting. See, I've never heard this in church before. You'll probably never hear it again, but uh, <laughs> you'll have the podcast. Paul goes on to say something interesting in 1 Corinthians six eighteen. He says, "Flee from sexual immorality." Listen to this. I just caught it this week. Every other sin a person commits, every other sin, is what? Outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or you might say it's inside the body. Now, some people will say, well, Pastor, I don't see the big deal with sex sins. Because sin is sin. No, sin is not sin. Sin is sin in that all sin can separate us from the Lord. But not all sin is equal in its devastating consequences, right? Does that make sense? I mean, you can just think of all these different sins. In fact, if that was the case, there really wouldn't need to be a judgment seat to stand before the Lord, where the Lord says that each one is judged according to his or her works. What is he saying? He's saying just like in a civil court, there's varying degrees of punishment, consequences for various actions, and so it is in the kingdom of God. And the Lord said you need to understand that different sins have different consequences in your life. It doesn't mean they can't be forgiven, but it does mean, again, they have consequences. David was a man after God's own heart. David was forgiven his sin. David was truly David He truly repented. But were there not consequences to David's sin? Sure there was. There's was a divided kingdom. There's a number of things, quarreling in the house, different things that happened because of the impact of his sin. The reality is nothing touches us so deeply as our sexuality. And when Paul says that sexual sin is against our own body, I believe what he's saying is that it affects the whole person in a way that no other sin does. Because sexual sin hurts us or impacts us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Now, we used the illustration a couple of weeks ago. If I was to take two pieces of wood, And glue them together with wood glue and leave them there a long time until they were set solid. And then I came along. I couldn't do it with my hands, so I'd have to use, you know, a wedge or a screwdriver or a hammer or something. And finally broke them apart. What's going to happen? It's not going to be a clean break, is it? You're going to have brokenness and splintering. You're going to have pieces of one stuck forever in another. Pieces of this one permanently in the other one embedded in. That's the image we get of a oneness that becomes broken apart. That's what Paul's getting at. He says when you become one with somebody and then break away from them, and then you either enter into your marriage with a new person or you return to your marriage bed with that person. He says this, and we know scientifically this is true, but spiritually as well, there's no longer just two of you in that bed, is there? There's three of you or four of you, whatever it may be. And Paul wants us to understand that when that happens, you can't just get rid of it without some serious repentance and serious deliverance. And I thank God he can do that. I thank God that God can restore what the enemy has eaten away. God can remove the splinters. He can bring deliverance. He can set us free. And not only can he clean us up and set us free, he can make us better than we ever were. He can restore marriages to something they never were before. God can do that. But I'll be the first one to tell you, my friends, it comes at a great cost, with great pain and great consequences. Not because God is punishing, but the nature of sin itself, as James says, it brings death if it's allowed to have its way. And God can bring resurrection life, but it is a long journey, and yet God can do that. That's what Paul's getting at here. When you become one with somebody else and break away, then it's just uh, there's all these fragments left over. A number of years ago uh, in the church I was in Newfoundland, we had a Q&A one night with the young people, and I'll never forget, one of the young people asked the, the simple, honest question. They said, Pastor, they said, what's the big deal about sex anyway? What's the big deal about sex before marriage or experiencing sex now? I mean, after all, doesn't it make sense? If I'm going to get married one day, isn't it better if we have experience? So we know what we're doing. I mean, that's just the way our culture thinks, right? Hey, you're better off, live together, try it out for a while. If it doesn't work, then go with somebody else. And I'll never forget the young man that was working with our young people at that time. He just stood up. He was the first one. You know, the adults kind of look at each other like, how do we answer that? We're probably into a, you know, systematic theology, 12-point, you know, response. And this young man just stands up and he says, listen, he says, I don't know if this answers your question or not, but I can tell you this. He said, I love my wife more than life itself. He said, when I stood with her at the altar a couple of years ago, because he, he was saved late in his life, he said, when I was standing at the altar looking into the eyes of this beautiful woman that God had given to me, He said, there was nothing more in my heart that I wanted to give her more than me, all of me. And he said, but I knew as I was standing there, I couldn't do that. I gave her my love. I gave her everything I had. But I could not give her all of me because I had given myself to others in the past. And he wasn't living with shame and condemnation, but he had the regret. And I think I can probably say for most of us here this morning, if we had the opportunity and were with the person that we love on our wedding day, we would have loved to have said, and many of you have, maybe many haven't, would love to have said, you're the only person I've ever loved, and I'm giving myself completely for you. I believe that's God's design, I don't think that's too old-fashioned or too archaic. You may be here this morning, and you've had that same regret over the years, or maybe your mind has been a battleground of memories the devil has used to torment you, or maybe even to bring doubt into your marriage. You know, it was about 20 years ago, and I debated whether or not to share this, but I, I and I don't, I don't share things for theatrics, you know, I don't share, I, I, I just really believe we're all on the same journey, aren't we? You know, we're, we're all in the same journey. I don't believe in just sharing things and say, hey, I'm living a sloppy life. No, but, but I'm, I just thank God that we have a redemptive God. It was about 20 years ago. I can remember a time, just a short season. Life is busy. Kids are young. Churches going bananas. It's just busy, 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 busy. And I can remember a time when it just seemed like in marriage that we're just kind of drifting a bit. Loved each other very much, my wife Vanessa and I. Nothing was wrong in that sense, but just life was busy or you, you're not having the time, you're not connecting, all that kind of stuff. And I just found there was a season where it's like the enemy was bringing back memories in my mind. And some of the memories he began to bring back in my mind were girls I had dated in the past. And some of the thoughts, some of the faces kind of went like this. I wonder what it would have been like being married to that person. You know where I'm coming from? Not that I was dwelling on it necessarily, just, just a thought. Kind of passed through, just a thought. I wonder what it would have been like if I'd married that person instead. I didn't regret marrying my wife. But just the thought comes, the image comes, the face comes. You know, I don't know, different personality, different whatever the case may be. You know, because when you're dating, it's different. Everything's funny, everything's perfect. You're not doing life together. You're, you're dating, right? And, and so I just kind of had some of these thoughts. And... Uh, and it wasn't because of any deficiency in my wife. It was just spiritual fodder that the enemy could use against me because I had somewhat seriously dated about a half dozen girls from the time I was 13 to the time I was 23. Probably about a half dozen. That might seem like a lot to some. It might seem like a, a year's worth to some else, somebody else. So that had happened. But one day, I just came to the Lord. I said, Lord, I don't like these thoughts. I don't even like, you know, just why this season? Why this regularity? Why why am I struggling with this? And Lord, what do I do? And I really felt the Holy Spirit say to me very clearly. He said, Paul, take a piece of paper, and I want you to write down every name. There's only six or seven names. He said, now, I want you to speak every name. I want you, when you name the name, renounce every connection. And I want you to give this person to me. And I took my time. About a half hour, I went through every name. Any thought I could think, any memory that came to mind, I renounced it. I gave, and it wasn't necessarily all bad thoughts. Just, it could be wonderful thoughts. But Lord, this person is not my spouse. I give you this person. I name the name. And in Jesus' name, I renounce this. Not renounce the person. It wasn't their fault. I just, I just renounced this fodder that the enemy had to use in my mind. And when I was through doing that, I really felt the Lord break what it was that seemed to be grappling with. In fact, I can honestly say that the Lord just kind of resolved that and things went on. Because I didn't even remember this until I was in the study this week, and I felt the Lord brought it back to my mind to share with you this morning. Does that make sense? So the Lord did a wonderful work there, but I believe that's what Paul's referring to. In 2 Timothy 2.22, when Paul said, Flee youthful passions. Or another translation, he says, run away from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. What's Paul talking about? You might have a different take on this, but when I read that scripture, what comes to my mind is that Paul is saying that he's talking about sexual sins that we struggle with in our youth that become strongholds in our lives for years to come. Now, I can honestly say I was not sexually active with these people. You don't have to be to have those kind of thoughts. But there were some relationships where I have to be honest to say they weren't as pure as what God intended, whether or not sexually active. But you see, again, in those 10 years, they became memories, thoughts that the enemy could draw on. And I promise you, if that's kind of been your pattern in your life, or if you're flirting with somebody at work, you you know you're kind of going a bit too far, and you're you're thinking about that person, I promise you, when things get difficult in your relationship, that person will come to your mind. And you will fantasize maybe what life could be like with them. We know how the rabbit trail goes, right? How the snare is laid. It happens a million times over, and yet every single time we think we're the first person To ever struggle with that. The first person to have those thoughts. Young people, I plead with you this morning that you need to run away from anything that stimulates those passions, Paul says, that you cannot fulfill righteously outside of marriage. You need to understand that you are playing with things that are going to take a lifetime to clean up. And Paul says, run as fast as you can. And parents, I can't plead with you strong enough to establish boundaries for your children when it comes to dating. Teenagers. I didn't have that guidance at my age of 13. I wish I had somebody to sit down with. My mother did once in a while, but that was about it. God love her. She did her best in that way. But as much as I love my father, there was never a talk, a man-to-man talk. There was never an intervention that said, whoa, 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 I understand where you're coming from, but you're too young. This is not the time. This is the time to be out there playing ball hockey. This is not the time to be pairing off with somebody. Now, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you that in our home, it was taught from a young age. Number one... Dating is not to be recreational. Dating is not to be something that you just fill your time with, young person, or mom for your teenager. It's not cute when a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old starts to have a boyfriend or girlfriend. Hear me, it's not cute. It's dangerous. Not only is it dangerous because it's too young, it's dangerous because we live in a culture so unlike the day that I was growing up. When I was growing up, if you wanted to see something, something wrong, then you basically either, you know, found a stash of of Playboy magazines under your father's bed or somewhere in the basement, you know, or you got a pen out, you drew something. I don't know what you did. Today, we all know what's out there. Our entire society is just shot through with every kind of perversion, and it's just a click away. And so how much more do we need to make sure we safeguard our children from what's out there, but also not to be encouraged in relationships at a young age. Now, I've made mistakes as a father. I'll be the first one, well, I'll be the second one. Ben will be the first one to tell you, but I've made mistakes. But I can tell you this. One thing we did is we established an understanding for our boys that, number one, dating is not recreational. Number two, you do not date till you're 16. And even then, you date in a group. You do not date privately until you're 18 years of age. And when you do decide to date, you only date if you're dating somebody who you honestly feel you can marry. That you feel this is going to be a long-term relationship. You do not use the other person just to fill a void in your life. You don't use the other person just to, you know, just to have something to do on a Friday night. And hear me, friends, and I say this with love, you do not date somebody who does not know Jesus Christ and love Him with all their heart. You can take that any way you want. That's just scripture. That's just scripture. You need to find, oh, but pastor, I know Christian boys that are worse than non-Christian, Christian girls, I could care less than find a Christian boy who loves Jesus. Find a Christian girl who loves Jesus. It doesn't change it, whatever it may be. But we need to have those parameters for our kids. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that You're going to get tested. I get tested. By one son, at least. You know, they're going to push the envelope. They're going going to see, you know, do they really mean that? Or can I get away with whatever the case may be? And so occasionally, you have to have the talks. We've had talks with both of them. Hey, let's remember the parameters. Let's remember what we said. Let's remember why. So again, you're going to get tested. Please, parents, please don't say, Well, they're 14 years old. What are you going to do? You're going to parent them is what you're going to do. Oh, they're 16. What can you do? You parent them is what you do. They are under your care, and their lives can be destroyed. You say, oh, well, you know, everybody sows their wild oats. Has there ever been such a lie from the pit of hell that we just have this season that we can live irresponsibly, sow our wild oats, regardless of who gets hurt? and think that we're not going to reap a whirlwind down the road. Would you tell your kids, well, you know you're going to sow your wild oats. So you might as well go pick up some STDs everybody has. You need, to, you need to struggle with those for a little while. You need this and this. We would never do that. But we do it with the spirit. We do it with the emotions. You got to go have your fun. You got to, whatever the case, I don't want my child to be thought of as different than other kids. If you're serving Jesus, you're different. And you're not different because you're weird. You're different because you understand how life works. And so you live differently. You are the one who is supposed to draw the person into the light by the way you live. And but friends, you see, being a Christian is not a bunch of rules that says, here's what you can't do. Being a Christian is understanding truth. And the Lord saying, here's all that you can Here's all that you can enjoy because of some parameters that I want to put around your life. You see, I I say this oftentimes to couples who are living together, but the same for young adults, anybody. We might think we're 14, 16, 20, whatever the case may be. Well, you know, I just can't control myself and I love the person. I want to make sure they love me, so we're going to have sex because that way I kind of know they love me. And whatever whatever the lie, the enemy is feeding you. And we say, well, I can just ask for forgiveness later. There's no big deal. You see, one of the reasons why God wants us to abstain when it comes to our dating and he wants us to be pure, number one, because he says, I'm holy. I want you to be holy. What he means by that is not only am I without sin, but I'm whole. There's no brokenness, fracturedness in me. I don't want fracturedness in you. I want you to be whole, but also this. I want you to stand at your wedding day and honestly give yourself to the person. That's why I say to anybody who plans to get married at Glad Tidings Church, if you're living in common law, I will marry you, but only if you abstain till your wedding day. I don't care if that's two months, six months, a year. If you will not make that commitment, I will not marry you. Why? Because when you stand at the altar, it's not just me saying, domino, sanctos, christos, you know, Whatever. It's me saying, Holy Spirit, will you bless this couple? And God does not bless sin. He does not. He wants to bless you. I'm not saying that to condemn you. He wants to bless you. He wants His presence to hover over you. He wants you to know His presence in your life. All He's saying is, line up to what I'm showing you. Come to me, and I will bless you. He's saying, listen put a nice meal on the plate. Something you're not embarrassed to show me, and I'll bless you. Don't just throw on craft dinner or a few house flies and maggots and whatever you feel like doing. Say, oh, God, come and bless. He'll say, get that stench away. I cannot bless what intentionally violates everything I've told you. Does that make sense? wasn't in my notes, but I want us to understand. But here's another very important reason. We don't think of this The devil knows this. It's one of the reasons he tempts you. Not only does he want want that fragmentation in your life now, but the devil knows 20 years from now, and God knows this, 20 years from now after you get married, you don't think of it right now, but you are going to be sitting down with a teenager whom you love more than anything in the world, and you're going to want to give your teenager advice on how to date What to do, what not to do. And you know what God wants because he loves you? He wants you to be able to sit down with your child on that day and share wisdom with them with confidence and authority. Not sit down with them and say, I didn't do it, but you better. I couldn't do it, but I hope you will. Now understand, if you didn't know Christ... You did what you did in ignorance. If you did know Christ and you've repented, you can still talk to your kids. You don't you know where I'm going with this. You understand what I'm saying? You see, the devil wants to rob you of your future. And so he'll do it now. So he'll sow things into your life that you have no confidence when it, the time really comes. I'm getting off my notes, but I hope, I hope it makes sense. I've got to cut into this. Okay. The second reason, anyway, this is the second reason, and there's even a third reason. I'll give them to you, but I'm I'm just going to zip through. I just have a few scriptures for you. A second reason for the purpose for for, uh, sex in marriage is for renewing your marriage. When God made a covenant with Israel, it's beautiful. He not only made the covenant, but in that covenant, he also had feasts and ceremonies so that when the people came together occasionally, what would they do? They would reread the covenant. They would renew the covenant. They would recommit themselves to the covenant. Marriage is meant to be the same way. Sex in marriage is a renewing of that covenant. And it's a reminder that whatever is going on around you as a couple, despite that, God has given you intimacy. He has given you a bedroom as a sanctuary. Why? Because God intends for you and your spouse to come together. And when you do, you are shutting the world out. That's why you close your door. That's why you lock your door. What are you saying? You're saying, listen, all that stuff out there that we need to face together, we need to make sure that we are centered in each other. We need to make, remind ourselves that we are the most important people to each other. That's why couples hear me. However crazy life is out there, don't allow those things to pull you apart. Be committed to coming together on a regular basis, and in doing so, you are able to face those things together and, again, remind you that the person you married is not the problem. The problem is the problem, and you face the problem together. So we need that connection for the renewing of our marriage. You also need to take every opportunity to remind yourself that you're, what your spouse means to you. And God has provided sex as a unique way for that to happen. In fact, he not only created sex in marriage, he strongly commands it. Chapter 7. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal, that is, marital rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Let me just say this. I understand physiologically the difference between a husband and a wife and, and, and the sex drive and so on. But there's also a, lot, a, lot, uh, a part to play. It's just personalities. Oftentimes, you'll have women who are, who are, who are, who are uh, more sexually driven, more affectionate, want the connection, and so on, than men, and vice versa. So a lot of it, too, is personality along with physio, uh, physiology. He says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, and all the men said, but the husband does. And then Paul said, not this Paul, but Paul in the Bible he said this most incredibly radical thing for his day. Because the first part, all the men would have said, hey, Paul, we agree with you. Yes, we are the ones who control our wife's body. But then he says this, likewise, husbands, you don't have authority over your body. The wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps, and he didn't even say always, but just perhaps, by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And by lack of self-control, he's not just talking about the fact, you know, if you haven't had sex with your spouse, you're out there looking for sex. He's not talking about that. He's saying we all have a need, not only for sex, but we have a need to connect. If you're not coming together with your spouse on a basis that you've agreed to, that is fulfilling for both of you, you've got to understand your spouse is looking for emotional connectedness somewhere. They're looking for somebody who makes them feel attractive, somebody who's saying, I want you, I desire you. And that's why sometimes when there's affairs, it really isn't just about the sex. It's about feeling needed again, feeling loved by somebody like you're wanted by somebody else. God made sex to be pleasurable, of course, because God's the one who created pleasure. Listen to Proverbs. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. You guys are so quiet. Song of Solomon. You know, a lot of good, godly people say, well, the Song of Solomon is about Jesus and the church. It's an allegory. No, no, it's about a man and a woman. It's about a husband and a wife. And in the Song of Solomon, hey, guys, read it. She's the one seeking the man and desire and intimacy. Sex is the most powerful God-created way to give yourself to your spouse again and again. Or as I said in my post, again and again and again and again. It's a God's way of saying to one another, I belong completely to you. And I've got to encourage you with this, my friends. Never use sex as anything less than that never cheapen sex by using it as a bargaining tool against your spouse. Never do that. Paul wants married believers to understand that a mutually satisfying sexual relationship has to be an important part of their life together. In fact, he's saying that it should be regular and often as you agree upon and if you abstain, it's only for a short time. One spouse in Paul's day was not permitted to deny sex to the other. And I know somebody's thinking, but Paul, I don't like I don't like to have sex. Now, listen to me. If there's been an issue in your marriage, there's been unfaithfulness or something that you're working through, okay, that's different. You've got to take the time to do that as you work on that together. But I'm talking about a husband-and-wife relationship where there hasn't been that, and Paul is saying, listen, you need to make sure you're coming together on a regular basis. And again, some of you will say, well, Paul, I don't like to have sex. This is going to sound insensitive. Let me just say this. It's not about you. I'm sorry. It's not about you. Our culture says it is, but you see, it's not. You entered into a marriage commitment with another person, and God says in Ephesians 5 that we are to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now We mentioned last time how marriage is to be a reflection of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, Jesus and you and me. And what we see in that relationship is that Jesus gave himself freely and completely to us for our fulfillment, even if we don't deserve it. Now You might be thinking, does that mean the other person can use you? And this goes both ways. And that's not what it means. But what it does mean is that if there is an issue, that together you need to work out the issue to resolve whatever it is so that you can come together again, rather than staying away from each other and exposing each other to temptation with another person or with another means, such as pornography, that we'll look at next week. Sexual desire swings both ways sometimes through the years in a marriage relationship, but that's why Paul says we have to submit to one another Put each person's needs before your own. Be more concerned about giving than getting. And friends, it's not just sex, but be concerned about giving affection if that's needed. Acts of kindness, acts of love, small small things you might do around the house, whatever it is, things that you do out of consideration, he should be more concerned about giving than getting. Why? Because he says that is the Christian way. It's not our culture's way, it is the Christian way that the greatest pleasure comes from seeing your spouse be fulfilled and receive pleasure. Friends, I believe with all my heart, if we, could actu- if we would actually be Christ-like in our marriage, I believe that most sexual dysfunction would just disappear. Most issues in our marriage in that area would disappear if we would just be like Christ, the husband and the wife. And if you do not have much of a sex driver as much as your spouse, this sounds radical, friends, But the word of God says, then you can give sexual pleasure to your spouse as a gift. That sounds crazy. That's not what our culture says. But you can engage in intimacy with your spouse as a gift. Our society says it's all about self-gratification, but the Lord says it's a legitimate expression of love. And that's Jesus' way. I have one more, but I don't have time. I'm going to ask the musicians if you'd join me. I will say this as they come. The best gift you can give to your children is number one, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ that's real and that's shaping your life. And number two, it's a great marriage. A great marriage that would become a standard for your children of what they know, what they can experience, what they can expect for themselves, and that they know that mom and dad have what they have because they have a life with Jesus Christ, and they know that they can have the same if they have a walk with the Lord as well. Let me ask you this morning, I want you to think about this as we close. Do you trust God? Think about it. Do you really trust God? Do you trust him with your salvation? your eternity? Do you trust God with your marriage? Do you trust God with your sexuality? Now, I want you to think about this, whether you're single, married, young, or old. Do you trust God with your sexuality? Because the way a lot of us live sometimes, it's as if to say, in this area, God doesn't know what he's talking about. And that's what our culture says. God, religion, the Bible, they got it all backwards. But I want to tell you this morning, friends, when it comes to sex, God got it right. He got it right. And if there's going to be revival in the church, in the churches of Moncton, if there's going to be revival in our homes, then we have to begin by getting this area of sex and sexuality Aligned with God's truth. If there's going to be change, if there's going to be healing, if there's going to be function and fulfillment, friends, we have got to stop listening to the lies of our culture. And hear me, we'll talk more next week. Friends, you've got to start turning the TV off. You've got to start turning off some of the stuff that we're watching that we think somehow is normal. It is so twisted, backward, dysfunctional. It's called acting. It's acting, but it's on the screen for you to look at it and think, oh, I wish my spouse was like that. The actor's spouse isn't like that. Nobody's like that. God has designed a husband and a wife to enjoy an incredible fulfillment and sexual pleasure face to face. That's why we're made that way. That's why we're made that way. We don't have to throw them against the wall. We don't have to tear their clothes off. We don't have to, you know, be acrobats to have a sexually fulfilling life. We just need to love Jesus, grow in Jesus, give his love, express his love, Two people who love each other, give themselves for each other, who know each other at a deep level, who connect in their spirit and in their soul, that when they come together physically, all they need to do is look into one another's eyes and say, I love you completely and exclusively. And my fulfillment is being one with you, face-to-face, eye-to-eye. That's the intention of God. Yeah, time to close. (laughs) OK. Next week we're talking finances, I think. We're just going <laughs> to take a break and actually, I don't know if anybody noticed, but my wife's not here this morning. <laughs> She's legitimately homesick of all, the, of all the times to miss, eh she'll, she'll get me on the podcast. Can we stand together? And as we dismiss this morning, I'm going to ask the ministry team, would you just come now? We just have some folks who would love to pray with you. And you're here this morning, if you don't know Jesus, but you know what it is for life to be kind of broken and dysfunctional, not fulfilling, I want to invite you this morning just to come, and we want to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus. If you're here this morning and something I've shared has just rung true, and you say, Pastor, I'd just like somebody to agree with me and You know, maybe you would do what I did and just say, you know, I just need to speak out some names and ask that person to agree with me and just break off some things. I don't want the devil using that stuff anymore. I I really want to have a clean mind, clean heart, and I want to give myself completely to my spouse. There's power in two people agreeing together. We're going to talk about that next week just for a minute. But I'm going to ask Pastor Jenny just to lead us, and I'm going to pray first, and if you need to slip out, you're dismissed. God bless you. Thank you for your attention. Uh, you're dismissed, but if you want to come for prayer, maybe there's sickness in your body, we believe God heals. We want to pray for your, for your body. Whatever it may be, you feel free to come. Heavenly Father, I just thank you again for your word, for your truth. I thank you that your truth does not bring bondage. It brings such freedom. It's so radical, different from our culture, and I thank you because our culture is broken. It's so messed up. But I thank you in the midst of all that, we can live, oh God, a fulfilling life and relationships, Such that those who don't know you see it and they want to know how it works and they come to you. And so, Father, I just pray that your word would settle in every heart here this morning, that, Lord, your word would not be forgotten and that we would have faith in every heart, every home, no matter where things may be, that things can change, can turn around. If we will just surrender ourselves to you and your ways, if we will be honest enough to address those things that you're pointing to and not blame the other person, I pray, Lord, for such freedom to move through this house a freedom that would bring revival, oh God, in homes, in the church, in our community. I thank you. So Lord, dismiss us. I pray with your blessing. We thank you for the honor of being in your presence today. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name.